You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. from watching all the World Cup like replays on my iPhone. <laughs> so that's how my body is doing. It's always good to do like a body check-in and see how things are sitting in you. Um, thanks for inviting me back to preach. It's been, I guess, a little bit. I left, uh, I was community director here for a few years and left to go to Divinity School, which I just graduated from. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'm now super smart and divine, so very well qualified to preach. I actually have take, took zero classes on the Bible, so um, I'm actually like basically no, less, no more qualified to preach on the scripture than I was before I left, but uh, we'll just ignore that, set that, and we'll read this gospel passage together from uh, Mark chapter 4. Um, it's two parables kind of conjoined. The second parable is more famous. It's on the mustard seed, and feel free to... I guess we could read, maybe we'll just read silently and I'll read it aloud. Um, Jesus also said, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day. And the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and puts forth large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. That second parable my dad used to preach on all the time, and I would really hate it. Um, so this was a good sermon for me to kind of come back around to it. Because the, the parable, particularly the second one, um, gets interpreted a lot in terms of like, uh, at least the, the way my dad would preach it, would be all about having faith. And if you start small, you'll grow big. And it was almost like this like sort of capitalist narrative. You start with like seed venture money, and then you have Facebook. Um, but like applied to church, if that makes sense. Like the goal was to become a mega church at some point. Um, so, I, I, I mean, that's not entirely wrong in terms of the meaning of what I think one of the meanings of this parable could be, but I wanna just explore another alternative reading of it. Um, but before I do that, I wanna do like a simple grammar lesson. Um, you guys are familiar with subjects and objects in grammar. If you especially study any Romance languages, you know, like the subject and the object. So subjects are nouns in our English language that perform verbs. And objects receive verbs or receive action. So, um, you know, I am holding 
this cup. Cup is object, I am subject, because I am doing the action. So in this parable, I'm curious, uh, we're a pretty interactive church, where, who would you say the subject is? Maybe we can go back and show a little bit. The slides are a little wonky today because I changed my sermon last minute all the time. Um, so yeah, who's the subject in this parable? Sower, okay. And then maybe the second one? Let's go to that one. So it's a trick question. Um, There are two subjects, arguably. Even if you go back to the first parable, right? The sower is scattering seed. But then look, it says the earth produces of itself, which is sort of interesting language. And then the sower is technically the subject, but has no clue what's going on. You know, it says, you know, the seed was sprouted and grow. He does not know how. And he just kind of reaps the benefits at the end. And then with the mustard seed, you notice that the subject is sort of implied, the sower, sorry, Regina, if you can go back one more slide. It says, you know, it is sown upon the ground, so passive tense. Uh, but then it really becomes protagonist. The sower is sort of invisible. It grows up. It becomes the greatest of all shrub. It puts forth the large branches. You know, if there was like a movie, the mustard seed would be like starring as the protagonist in it. And... <laughs> Oh, and I think this is more than just like a fun, you know, uh, English language exercise because for a number of reasons. One, historically, a mustard seed is considered essentially a weed. Gardeners would not want it in their garden because it'll invade and take over all the plants. It essentially like germinates as soon as it hits contact with the ground. So you see how those two parables kind of go hand in hand together. Even though it's a mustard seed that takes prominence, it's about sort of this vitality, fertility that cannot be stopped. Um, and Revelation Valunta, who's a Filipino-American theologian, has this great kind of read of the mustard seed. Because the parable likens God's reign to a weed. It grows where it is not wanted and eventually takes over the place. All wild mustard have to be cut down lest they disturb the domesticity of the gardens tended by the rich, the powerful, and the religious elite. Which kind of fix that image in your mind a little bit. The domesticity of gardens and so the wildness of weeds. And I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson. Um, but it's interesting to think about the kingdom of God as a weed. And for those of us, the 2% of us who have access to backyards, um, <laughs> you know, it's like you cut them down, just relying on old memories here. Um, and then you, you're like, oh, thank God they're gone, and they pop back up you know, without any effort from you. So this is kind of like the Chumbawamba song. You know, you you cut them down, they get back up again. Um, And I'm really emphasizing the agency of plants here um, for hopefully not too unobvious of a reason. You know, we're living in a time in which the agency and the power of the air we breathe, you know, impacts our ability to leave our apartments, our offices, we also live and work in a country that was sort of taken um, by indigenous pe- from indigenous peoples whose customs and traditions traditionally sort of upheld the animacy and agency and power of plants and animals and land. So whether it's temporally, I think it's a timely time to talk about power of nature, or spatially, because of where we sit, it's an important time. Um, I think it's a good time to talk about it. So back to the history lesson. Um, so when, you know, this is me summarizing, summarizing like centuries of history. If you want to read more about it, there's a great book, um, a slide will show up at some point called Reinventing Eden by Carolyn Merchant. But so the, when Europeans around the 16th, 17th century went to sort of colonize sort of various areas of the world, 
uh, they would mock a lot of indigenous religions as primitive or superstitious for believing in sort of the gods of nature or gods of objects. Like, why would you believe in this wooden totem? You know, you're, you're superstitious, idolatrous. Why worship the god of harvest or rice or corn or rain? You, what you need is science and technology and machinery because those are essentially our gods. Um, and also, Jesus is number one. Um, so, you know, they would say stuff like, you can chop down all those trees. They're not sacred. There are no gods living in them. Just turn them into firewood. Give it to the god of money. You know, um, uh, you know how it goes with Christianity. So, essentially, the, the, be- the, the belief, essentially, is that the premises of this belief is that we are separate from nature. We're not just separate. We're above it. And, you know, per Genesis 1, and these people were sort of thoroughgoing Christians, uh, we're commanded to rule and subdue the earth, have dominion over it. And so in this kind of cosmology, the earth is an object, a sort of passive recipient, and we humans are the subjects. We are the ones sort of working the earth, making it fertile, making it produce what we want it to produce. Um, and I say all this because, you know, we, we are standing or sitting in a church. And so I think if we're going to call ourselves Christian or kind of be part of this community in some way, we have to grapple with sort of how intimately the story of Christianity is woven the story of colonization. And in particular, it really gets down to very specific biblical stories. So you take um, the story of Adam and Eve. Um, for those of you not super familiar, they're sort of like OG humans. And then <laughs> they do some bad things. They get expelled from the Garden of Eden, and they're cursed. Um, Two curses happen. One is the land becomes very hard to work, so that, and then um, pregnancy becomes really hard. So essentially, the womb and land get sort of uh, put in a similar category, I would argue to say, arguably say, and fertility, whether of womb or land, becomes difficult. And over time, and this is in no part um, small thanks to Aristotle, Earth gets associated with the sort of feminine, and the farmer or the sower gets associated with the masculine. Um, Do I have that Aristotle quote in there at one point? But um, if it comes up, oh, there we go. So this is sort of Greco-Roman reproduction, reproductive theory. But you can see here it says the male stands for the effective and active, and the female considered as female for the passive. So essentially, the female contribution is this sort of passive material that the sperm has to actively work upon. And you see that kind of biological reproductive theory get mapped onto agriculture theory as well. The land is sort of passive, inert, and it takes the active work of farmers and agriculturists to like invigorate and bring fertility into the soil. So essentially, labor is what makes the soil productive. The soil has no value in and of itself. And you have Marxist theory of labor and all that stuff coming from that, too. Um, but over time, what happens particularly, you know, this could be just like a cute theory that some guy came up with. But unfortunately, um, around time of enlightenment and the sort of the age of conquest, colonization, um, this sort of narrative, of which there are many narratives, but this one narrative sort of becomes more dominant. And the belief was... You know, Adam and Eve got expelled from the garden. We have to recover that garden of Eden. We have to return to it. So that means that when we go out to the sort of quote, quote unquote new world, we not only have to redeem souls and convert all these people to Christianity, we also have to redeem the lamb. We have to convert what the Europeans saw as wilderness, sort of untamed barbaric wilderness, and tame it into cultivated gardens. 
going back to Valinta's quote about domesticity of gardens. And obviously, it's a very gendered dynamic. It's like men going out, conquering, essentially raping and pillaging um, the earth. And so you have tons of sort of paintings and text um, encapsulating this. I'm just going to show one painting. This is by uh, a German cartographer um, called America. It's painted around 1575. And this Italian explorer, explorer Amerigo Vespucci, um, I think America is maybe named after him. You can see he's standing on the left and he's holding a flag with a cross on it and something called an astrolab, which is a technical instrument used in astronomy. So it's like Christianity and science. Um, and then he is discovering or sort of civilizing America, which is the name given to this uh, basically naked woman um, who's sort of voluptuous and she sort of represents the sort of primitive, uh, undeveloped land of America that Europeans have come to develop. And you can see in the faint background, sort of native men roasting a human leg over fire, so they're supposed to be like cannibals and savages, and like animals on this side, and then the European ships coming. So it's like the convergence. Um, and so essentially, and you see this all over, not just in the Americas, but wherever, even as late in the 20th century, my research focused on um, 20th century colonization of, of Borneo, Malaysia. But the use of land is often used to justify colonization. So colonists, even you know, refined ones, would say like, you know, these peoples, they don't know how to develop the land to its highest and best use. They're using like slash and burn agriculture, you know, very primitive methods of farming and planting. And we need to take over and teach them how to best cultivate the land to its highest and best use. Um, I say the highest and best use because it's also a very standard term, not coincidentally, in real estate industry, where real estate developers will look at neighborhoods and say, how can we bring this to its highest and best use? Um, so you can see the connection between displacement of colonization and real estate capitalism today. Um, but but I, I mentioned all these things also to say, you can see how the hierarchies kind of get overlaid with one another. You have the hierarchy between humans and nature, hierarchy between man and woman, hierarchy between white peoples and other peoples, darker peoples essentially, and they all kind of get overlaid on top of one another, such that at the very, very top of the pyramid is essentially a white man who owns property. In fact, many states in America for a good number of decades restricted voting rights only to property holders who are white men. And so, the idea was essentially the ideal person, the ideal subject, was someone who was in control of their bodies, of their emotions, of their land. They were in control of what happened in the land, they had perimeters, they had property rights, all that sort of stuff. And so I, I bring up land in connection to colonization and colonization of race because, you know, I don't think you can really conceive of enslaving or subjugating peoples until you first think of them as animals. But I also think you cannot think that thought without first thinking that you are not animal and that you are above animal. And so those two thoughts are sort of interwoven. And so to disentangle things, we have to start at sort of that messy knot. Um, I want to show another painting. This is a uh, 17th century sort of garden in France, a depiction of it. But around this time period, which is while Europeans are going around and you know trying to uh, commit genocide, they're cultivating great gardens. Uh, you know, you can pay five euros probably and do a little tour of one of these. 
Um, and it's, it's, the gardens are supposed to be the symbol, well, not really symbol, enactment of order and rule, the ability of the monarch to impose his will upon sort of wilderness or nature. And see, uh, just fast forward to 1836, this is Thomas Cole, who is a, I guess, famous American uh, painter. And this paint, painting is called View from Mount Holyoke, Northampton, Massachusetts, after a thunderstorm. But you see kind of the range here. You're moving from wilderness, which is in the dark and shadow, into pastoral landscape, which is the trees are mostly cut down, there's the river, it's lightful. And so you're bringing the Garden of Eden back onto earth. You are participating in the redemption of the earth. Um, of course, you know, there are a number of things missing from this depiction of the wilderness. One is uh, all native inhabitants are gone conveniently, so there's no displacement. You're just taking over nothing. No one owned it. You just took it. Um, and also, the, even the connotation of wilderness itself is something that essentially Europeans apply to something they didn't quite understand. Here's a, a quote from Chief Luther Standing Bay of the Lakota tribe at that period of time. He said, we do not think of the great open plains, the beautiful rolling hills, and the winding streams with tangled growth as quote-unquote wild. Only to the white man was nature a wilderness, and only to him was the land infested with wild animals and savage people. To earth, it was tame. Earth was bountiful. And in fact, I think it was last year, Sharice uh, Serrano, who used to go to Forefront, uh, was telling me a little bit that scientists are starting to look at what they previously thought was sort of untouched forests, and realizing that there are sections of it, patches of it, in which there are these surprising fruit trees and berry bushes, and realizing that these were actually sort of evidence of human cultivation by sort of indigenous peoples, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But if you just looked at it, you wouldn't think that's a garden. You would think that's just a forest. But they're sort of forest gardens, if that makes sense. But it was all just read as wilderness and, you know, barbarism and stuff like that. So I, I, I say all this not just because I think, you know, my takeaway here is that we need to have better environmental practices and stuff like that, um, although that's good. Um, I, I think fundamentally it, what... I'm sort of, what all of this is sort of getting at is actually really a religious question, which is a spiritual question, um, which is the question of who is a person, which is different from who is a human. Because if you accord someone personhood, it means in our kind of human infrastructure, Western infrastructure, you accord them rights. You can say that lake has a right if that lake is a person. And actually some, some countries are trying to like innovate legally in that area. But if you could say something is a person, if someone's a person, you means they're capable of action. We respect what they do. Um, and that is, I think, the way in which, I think for a lot of religions, indigenous religions, environmental practices are religious practices because it's a way in which you practice and respect other persons. And so thus I, I find some trouble with the language of environmental stewardship um, you know, very, very progressive and liberal Christians will say things like, well, we're not here to have dominion, we're here to have stewardship over the earth and take care of the earth, which is, like, obviously better than, like, dominion. But, uh, but the language of stewardship is still a little bit inadequate in a sense that there's still a subject, an object, where I take care of the earth, and earth is sort of this child, infant, um, that receives care. And so... I, I don't mean to flip the paradigm and then say the earth is the subject and we're the objects, although sometimes it can feel like that. 
um, particularly in the era of climate change, but to think what if we think of both of ourselves as partners, as subjects together. And so, um, you know, one answer could be we just ditch Christianity and, you know, just find another religion that's like better um, <laughs> for the environment. But, you know, I have considered it, frankly, but <laughs> I think I'm just Christian. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it is my, um, it's very baked into me and my parents and their grandparents and stuff like that. So um, why not figure out how to make it all work together? I, I'd recommend checking out this book. Um, it's by Marie Jorstad. It's called The Hebrew Bible and Environmental Ethics. Um, the subtitle is Humans, Non-Humans, and the Living Landscape. It's a little academic. Uh, I actually have a physical copy so you can skip through it. There's a podcast episode and she's been interviewed a few times. I don't know, I have the book's picture somewhere there. But she says, actually, if you pay attention to the Bible, which was kind of put together and written way before the Enlightenment, um, fairly pre-modern, um, it is full of language that depicts nature as very active, as very agentic. And we often write it off as metaphoric, like the trees don't really clap their hands, you know. You know, the rocks really don't cry out, it's just a metaphor. Um, but it happens so often that at some point you start thinking, maybe the writers of the Bible kind of believed it, like a little bit. Maybe, the, maybe just saying it's purely figurative is not writes it off too much. Maybe there's a truth somewhere in between. And I'm just going to hit you with a ton of verses. Get ready. <laughs> Are we ready to go to the next slide, Mimi? Uh, can we do the, the Genesis one? I'm sorry, Regina, I made your life very hard. Yeah, great, this is a great one. Okay, so see here, Genesis 1, very simple one. But notice, if you're paying attention to the verb language, the, the earth is the one putting forth vegetation. The earth is bringing forth vegetation. Plants are yielding seed. So very sump, subtle and simple, but you see the agency is put to the earth. And I don't have this verse out here, but also in verse, if you go down a few verses later, you can just double check me. Verse 16, verse 17, um, the, the writer of this portion of Genesis writes, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Um, and so the, the word used to rule over is typically the verb, from what I understand, not a Hebrew scholar, um, my friend Hattie can maybe correct me on this, is, is the word to govern. And so God gives governing power within the celestial space to certain stars over other stars. Right, could just be a metaphor, who knows. Um, let's try another verse, Genesis 4. Um, Yahweh says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I don't have time to get into this whole context. Someone kills someone, is bad. But, <laughs> but, you know, look at the language here. Cursed as you from the ground that opened its mouth to take your brother's blood from it, your hand. And so God hears about what's happening because the land is crying out, this blood I'm receiving. So the land is holding someone accountable for their actions and kind of bearing witness to it. This is a very, very active role the land is playing. Coincidence. All right, Leviticus um, 18. The earth was unclean and I visited its iniquity um, upon it and the earth vomited out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my ordinances and my judgments and not do any of these abominations so that the land does not vomit you out when you make it unclean, just as it vomited out. Wow, I've never said the word vomit so many times. Vomited <laughs> out the people who were before you. Um, 
Should I say more? I mean, like, vomiting, you know, it's a lot. Um, and essentially, Jorset sort of argues that the covenant between God and Israel is not just between God and Israel, it's actually between God, Israel, and the land. So the land becomes a complicit party. The land's like, you mess up, you mess me up too. I become unclean because of your actions. So I need to take action to be pure myself. So there is this kind of triangulation between all three parties. Um, if, and that's why in Leviticus 26 also you say, the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days it lies desolate and you are in the land of your enemies. Then the land will pay off its Sabbaths. The land's got to rest too. It's got to observe you know, one of the commandments. Uh, number 16, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and everyone who belonged to Korah and all the possessions. Basically some guys try to upstage Moses and Moses like, if you're right, then you win. If you're wrong, the earth is going to swallow you, and the earth swallowed them. Um, and the Hebrew Bible has all kinds of crazy stories. And then everyone fled because they're like, lest the earth swallow us. Um, Earth's got a big mouth. And then, so, and then Hosea 4, 2 to 3. For Yahweh, which is a reference to God, has a dispute with the inhabitants of the earth, for there is no truth and no loyalty, no knowledge of God in the earth. Therefore, the earth mourns and all who dwell in it language, languish. In fact, I think the verb mourn is something that is used repeatedly throughout the scriptures as a verb performed by multiple subjects, not just humans, to earth um, stones, mountains, like it is actually a very flexible verb for some reason or another, um, beyond my pay grade. Isaiah 55, 12, uh, for you should go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall burst into song, and the trees of the hill shall clap their hands. And this is one of my favorites, Psalm 19, two to five. The heavens recount the glory of the God, and the firmament, which I think is the sky, proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. It was interesting to think about nature having speech, talking to one another. Has anyone read the book um, Hidden Life of Trees? Wow, guys, you're really missing out. <laughs> I'm shook. Um, so you can get the bridge version with big photos, I recommend. It's a good coffee table read. But uh, basically, we're realizing trees have this like, amazing ways of communicating with one another. Well, they can do a lot of things. They can count. I, I, I don't, let's not turn this into a Hidden Life of Trees recap. Um, <laughs> but, but importantly, for the context of the sermon, for one example, uh, if a certain insect, like a hornet or something, comes and attacks one tree, um, the tree can develop this sap to kind of, that is toxic and repellent to the insect. But then the tree would then communicate to all the trees in its area, particularly in its line, I think, and they will start producing the sap as a preventative measure against if that insect then hops onto the next tree. Um, and so biologists are starting to realize there's this huge communication network happening through roots, and so the mycelium network that's happening underground. And so this is all to say, um, I'm not saying that the Bible is equivalent to like indigenous religions, but that they might have more in common that we might think. And that it's, you know, a little too lazy just to cede it entirely to the purview of um, modern, modernist white men. Um, hopefully I'm still good on time. I'll, I'll keep going a little bit. I do have a photo of my host's mom up, because I do think I, I want to share this beautiful story. Um, her, my, my research, like I mentioned, takes place in Borneo, Malaysia, and uh, it really couldn't happen without this woman named uh, Angie Angelica Swayman. She gave me permission to share the story and, and this photo with you all. 
um, the indigenous peoples in Borneo, uh, where my family's born, I'm not, we're not indigenous to it, we're ethnically Chinese, but um, we've been there for a few generations, but my research involves essentially just hanging out with a group of people who Angie sort of stewards in a way. Um, they're of the Dusunic uh, tribe, uh, essentially, and they're sort of one of the pretty large group, they're the largest ethnic group in Malaysia. So a little bit different from uh, indigenous peoples in America. And now she, a lot of them have been Catholic for multiple generations, but in this generation, they're experiencing or witnessing a kind of revival of interest in what uh, customs and traditions that were heretofore um, dismissed as either superstitious or demonic or what have you. So they very much, like I think many of us today, are trying to figure out how to integrate um, their ancestral traditions with their Catholic faith, with like modern technology, with like climate change, all this kind of stuff. Um, she's also a really good cook, so this is her cooking a, a meal for, for me before I, I left, and I'll go back every summer. But she told me the story, which has always stuck in my mind, about um, for among the, among the Dusun people, their creation story. And it's a lot of things involved in it, but one key element is this divine parent, like, like father and mother, and they have a daughter as well. And the earth is created, humans are created, plants, everything, but the earth is not fertile. So you have trees, but they're not bearing fruit. Um, you have, you know, things people can't eat. Humans are going to die of starvation, essentially. And so the parents, the father in particular, is like searching for a solution. And the mom was like, I got this. Uh, and then she goes to her daughter and is like, what do, you, what do you think about dying? And she thought, it's like, okay, I will die and I will fertilize the earth essentially with my body and blood. And so the husband comes back one day and, and is like, what happened to our daughter? And, she, and the, the mom's like, surprise, she's in the food you're eating. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of essentially. Um, so every time, you, you know, you eat the rice or you drink a coconut, you are drinking part of um, the, that daughter's body. And so during the agricultural harvest of rice, seven stalks of rice are kind of put together in a barrel, and it, you're literally remembering, as in reconstituting, the body of Humanundun, uh, did not pronounce that correctly, but, uh, and you're thanking her for her sacrifice, which is ever-present in like, the land around you. So uh, particularly as Catholics, you can think of that as a sort of like Eucharist every day, type deal, if that makes sense. Like every meal you have is you partaking of God's body. The daughter is divine, is a deity. Um, and so that to me was like very fascinating because it meant that the, the fertility of, the, of agriculture is not in the hands of the farmer, but it's in the powers in the earth itself and in the power of the earth, particularly feminine power, to be fertile and produce life. Um, and there's so much more to say, but um, I hope, do I have the next slide after here, that if there's kind of one takeaway you can have in all of this is to see, hope to begin to see nature, whether it's plants, animals, or what have you, as kin, as persons, as part of us, both in good and bad ways. When I say nature, I kind of mean it sort of loosely. Um, we tend to think of, like I said, humans separate from nature, but you know, thinking about even today, I'm breathing air. The fact that I can consume oxygen is not only just a result of trees releasing oxygen, but also it requires iron in my blood. And how do I get iron from eating animals and plants? And so the very fact of my breath tells me that I am not separate from the thing that I consider outside of myself. But in fact, we are sort of 
inter, inter, we are together, we are one. And that can also mean from lovely things like oxygen and iron to like plastic, you know. I think the EPA just revised its standards and show that microplastics, even the tiniest bit, can have like really long-term effects on our health. And New York City now has to like revise and test all its tap water. And so I just said before that this was an object and I am the subject, but in some ways this is the subject, I am the object too. I am now composed of plastic through drinking this. I was just desperate, I just needed something. Uh, you know, what can I do? So, um, I'm going to conclude with the, the story of the mustard seed. Um, and this is a story that uh, I have to give credit to Viv uh, Benjamin, who told me about the story. Um, I'm going to, I think, pull up a slide off the last, the last slide. Yes, okay. Um, so the Gurunji are sort of Aboriginal people to, to Australia have been living there for tens of thousands of years. About 150 years ago, uh, unfortunately, some white people came. And then they came, and they took over particularly this uh, area of land that they've held and lived in for many years, like I said, tens of thousands of years, um, took over the land and they just started turning it into cattle cultivation land. So like 15,000 cows showed up, that kind of thing. And um, so this obviously has huge environmental and religious impact. Um, the water holes are being clogged up, the land is sort of being ruined, and if the Gurunji try to eat any of these cows, they would be killed, so they in some ways treat it as less than cows. Um, and constitutionally in Australia at the time, uh, all Aboriginal peoples are classified as flora and fauna. So because that way they're not persons, and that way they don't have rights. So um, the Gurunji, their religious practices are very tied to the land. They don't, leaving the land, it's not really like a thing. So they work on the cattle stations, but they're paid very little. You know, if they're paid at all, they're given scraps of food. It's uh, very, very bad. But um, this guy named Vincent Lingari and a bunch of people go on a strike in, say, 1966. So they just stop working. And they essentially sit and squat and take over a, a small little part of land. They move from the cattle station to a sacred site that near a creek or river. And at first, you know, the Australian public is trying to learn what's going on. They're like, oh, they're, they're just laborers on strike. But it becomes clear that the Gurunji actually want something more. They want... Um, their land back. So they say, you know, we feel that the land is morally ours and should be returned to us. And they just sit for a year, like another two years, uh, three years, four years, five years, and people start paying attention. It's the 60s and 70s, so it's like people are like, maybe we should think about these things and be hippies. So, you know, like churches, student groups, trade unions are publicizing the cause, they're fundraising. And I think. Uh, Viv was explaining to me that, you know, the, so the mindset the Gurunji had at that time was sort of like, kind of like the mustard seed. If one of us falls, many more will rise. Like, the weeds will kind of keep going, so to speak. And it took about a total of eight years before they got a small portion of their land back. And in fact, it was only about three years ago that that land was, like, permanently theirs. It was, like, provisional for a while. Um, and, you know, you could be like, okay, that's a story. But it, what it also led up to was for the first time the Australian Constitution was revised to recognize Aboriginal land titles and that Aboriginal peoples are not flora and fauna but persons who can own land and what have you. And so it paved the way for many, obviously many other Aboriginal groups to reclaim land that was taken from them. So you can see a mustard seed, very, very small. I think it started out with a couple hundred people 
growing to become a very, very large tree, as the parable is saying, for many birds take shelter in. And just to kind of conclude, you know, to be sort of somewhat honest, I think sometimes I struggle, obviously, in times of uh, planetary disruption to think about what is the role of church, what is the role of what we do here on Sunday services. I say some words about something that some guy said 2,000 years ago, and then we sing some songs, and then you move on with your week and Sunday. And, you know, I think I was thinking to myself, like, what is the point of writing this sermon? And I was like, well, I think I'm doing what the parable is saying. Like, I'm hoping something I say will take root in one of you or some of you, and it will germinate, blossom. I don't know how. Maybe you'll look at your lunch a little differently. Maybe you'll, like, say hi to the tree on the sidewalk a bit differently. Maybe you'll kind of research what um, sort of urban native indigenous groups in New York City are doing. And I think it's beyond my control. I think I just have to take some faith that the seed will take root in you in some way and blossom and give life. So on that note, I'm going to uh, introduce communion, which is the next stage after the sermon. And uh, I think the ushers are going to come up. The sermon is over. You can stop listening, I guess. Uh, but now you have to listen again because I'll introduce communion. Communion, um, as, or the Eucharist, depending on tradition you've talked about, you come from, uh, the time in which we, as I was saying with the creation story, remember the sacrifice, so to speak, or atonement. I don't know. Why am I even saying these words? Let's just eat the cracker and drink the juice. Anyone is welcome to partake in it. You can just line up and start taking the band. We'll start playing music. And then when you do take the cracker and the juice, just hold on to it. And then we'll take it all together. I'll come back on stage for it. But you can, I don't know, if you're inspired by something I said, maybe it was the creation story of Himan and Dune and how we can take the Eucharist every day. Maybe, hopefully this Eucharist will transform the way you think about um, everything you put inside your bodies from here on out. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.